Yeah. Can you go over the, I guess, the significance coming from a Protestant background, mm -hmm. the idea of a confirmation name? Oh, it, I mean, it's not that. I didn't pick a confirmation name. My confirmation is a valid name. It doesn't affect the validity of the sacrament. But it's to help you to get a relationship with a saint. And so the idea would be to pick a name for confirmation that somebody that you want to it's a, be friends with. All right, quote, right? It's somebody dead who's a saint. But and we can have relations. So for me, um, and the only saint I knew when we were in our say was St. Francis of Assisi. And so I didn't pick a name, but that's the one I would have would have been good to pick because then it's like you get a friend in heaven. That's the idea. And so it's similar to having a sponsor who's a friend on earth who will pray for you. So the, your, the, the saint whose name you pick is making a similar pledge as a sponsor. They're going to watch out for you from heaven. And yes, death does not <clears throat> annihilate us. Um, the, so we call that the communion of saints, right? That the, <clears throat> we on earth here and saints in heaven can have um, friendship bonds. It takes some work on our part, right? Because we need to get to know them. Um, it's not so much work on their part, I think, because they know us. <laughs> uh huh. Yes, you want to have a sponsor. And so a sponsor would be somebody who um, is a practicing Catholic. Yeah. Yeah, you, need to, you want to have a sponsor. But if you, can't, if you don't know anyone who can be a good sponsor, um, the parish can um, um, supply um, um, somebody from the parish who would be willing to be your sponsor. And I, Doug has, in past years, been sponsors, and I have too. Okay, yeah. All right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a question I've been getting a lot recently. Uh huh. And I thought you got a baptismal name and a confirmation name. Is that the case or is it one for all? Yeah, you can pick, I mean, that's just entirely up to you. So you can, yeah. So if you're getting baptized and confirmed, um, it can be the same name for both. You'll t the the bishop will, um, so you need to give your confirmation name to the bishop because he'll say your confirmation name, you know, whatever it is, Francis, uh, what is your confirmation name going to be? Augustine. He'll say, Augustine, um, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? He'll say your name there. And the same thing in baptism. But, uh, you know, that he'll address you by your confirmation sponsor's name. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just at one time. <laughs> okay, all right. So, so our topic for today is um, the sixth commandment: Thou shalt not commit adultery, and therefore sexual ethics. So, let's ask Mary's intercession for this, since Mary, um, the Virgin Mary, is the our example of purity. So, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So we, um, we've got a lot to accomplish today. I probably won't succeed. but Because um, I didn't get to the seventh and eighth commandments last time. So we, need, we should do um, all the rest of the commandments. I, I doubt if I'll be able to do that. But uh, we'll see what we can do. All right. So thou shalt not commit adultery. So like all the commandments, 
um, there's something directly commanded, and then there are a lot of other things that aren't directly prohibited, but um, we could say are corollaries of the commandment. Right? So the commandment isn't just simply permitting adultery, but it's prohibiting rape, um, incest, um, and any sexual act that is not in accordance with God's plan. Right? And so that's what we want to look at. And it's positively commanding purity of heart or the virtue of chastity. All right, so that's kind of the, the broad picture. So the catechism here starts with an interesting question that maybe in earlier centuries, you know, wouldn't have entered in the catechism. But does a person have responsibility um, with regard to one's own sexual identity? In other words, is it something that's an essential part of us? And the answer is yes. We saw this when we looked at the creation of man. That Genesis tells us male, that he made us in his image and likeness, male and female, he made them. And so we can infer from that that our being made male and female is part of our being in the image of God, and we live it differently. Men um, are going to, um, both are equally in the image, right? That's clearly what Genesis is showing us, but um, we're not the same, men and women. Men are called to paternity, women to maternity, and we're gifted. So here's the key idea, that when God gives a mission, right? So maternity is a mission, paternity is, is a mission, and it's not restricted to biological so this is really important. Paternity and maternity, we tend to think is just biological. But the fact is, being a father, being a mother, is much, much bigger than um, the simple act of generation, right? It's education for children the whole their life. But we also um, exercise a role of fatherhood or motherhood with regard to other people who are in various ways dependent on us. All right? So the mission of fatherhood and motherhood is bigger than simply um, generating. And so that's part of our um, identity, um, being called to fatherhood or motherhood, right? in whatever way. Right? In, in other words, that's for every, fatherhood is for every man, even if I don't have children. Motherhood is for every woman, even if the woman doesn't have biological children. Um, yeah, and so the catechism says everyone should accept his or her identity as male or female, recognizing its importance for the whole of the person and its complementarity. Society is immensely richer for the fact that there are men and women, right? And that's true of the universal society and of every particular society, like the family, right? And so it's part of the beauty of the complementarity. We talked a little about that when we looked at the Catholic Church, right? The church is Catholic, meaning all inclusive, all different cultures. And this fundamental difference of male and female is a key, we could say maybe the the most important part of our complementarity. Okay. Um, so what is chastity? So the commandment, um, thou shalt not commit adultery, is positively commanding us to be chaste and or pure, right? They, they mean the same. And so chastity, the catechism says, is the positive integration of sexuality within the person. Now we tend to, note the catechism, that's not just by accident that it puts the word positive in there. I think most people think, um, with regard to Catholic sexual ethics, that we could sum it up in like four words, thou shalt, three words, thou shalt not. In other words, most people's idea of Catholic sexual ethics is don't do it, or it's bad, or something like that. And no, that's not right. God made us, and he made us with our sexuality, and he made us good, right? And so clearly our sexuality is something good that needs to be rightly ordered. And it's not just something good, 
But after the creation of man, God said that it was very good, human being made male and female. And so our sexuality is not just good, but very good, precisely because it's ordered to generating a human being who's made in the image of God, who has an eternal destiny. Right? And so human sexuality is infinitely more noble, immeasurably more noble than rabbit sexuality. Rabbit sexuality is good too, right? Because rabbits are good. But, uh, but, human, but mom and dad rabbit only make a rabbit who's here today and gone tomorrow. But mom and dad um, cooperate with God in generating a human being who lives forever. Right? And so that's human sexuality is very, very good. And anything that's very, very good is going to get attacked and abused. Right? And so that's the purpose of the Sixth Commandment, is to protect something very, very good from disordered um, use or abuse. All right, that's the idea. So the positive integration of sexuality within the person, not the repression or stamping out or, or something like that. Um, sexuality becomes truly human when it's integrated in a correct way into the relationship of one person to another, right? So sexuality, by the fact that it's not, again, by accident that Genesis says in his image and likeness he made them, or it even starts, let us make man in our image and likeness, right? So there's that plural on God's part. And when we looked at creation, we saw that was a reference to the Trinity. We're made in the image of a God who's not simply a monarch, a solid, solitary, right? But we're in the image of God who is complementarity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we're made for communion. And therefore, the second plural, male and female, he made them, is in some way mirroring the first plural, let us make man in our image. And so human sexuality um, orders us to a special kind of relationship, which is marriage, which is, um, uh, I like to think of it, this is from Thomas Aquinas, he kind of defines marriage as maximum friendship. Other friendships um, are generally partial in all different ways. I can leave at any time if I you know, get a job in a different country, and, but if I'm married, I can't just pick up and leave. Um, because it's, so it's a maximum friendship because it involves a total self-gift to another person. So to understand human sexuality in this commandment, we have to understand what marriage is for. So marriage as this maximum friendship is a unique friendship in which I give the whole of what I am to another person. And part of that we just said, if I'm a man, is fatherhood, paternity. And if I'm a woman, motherhood. And marriage is the place when, in which I can properly give that to another. And it, what makes it the right place is that it involves a total self-gift. And part of the total is I can't subtract myself from it. We'll come back to this in about a month when we look at the sacrament of matrimony. But it's, we have to keep that in mind now to understand the Sixth Commandment. So marriage by its nature is indissoluble because if it were, if I said, I'm not, um, if I were proposing my wife, let's just suppose, um, Marcia, that's her name, right? Let's get married for five years. She ought to slap me, right? Because that would not be a commitment for life, that's not romantic, right? That's not giving myself whole and entire for life, and that would not be good for children if they were brought into the world, right? And so a total self-gift means that it's, 
I'm giving myself with the dimension of time, and I'm giving myself with the dimension of fatherhood or motherhood. All right, the number of children we'll talk about later, but I'm at least um, potentially I'm giving myself precisely as father and mother. And this is why marriage has to be between a man and a woman, right? So that I, can, I can't give my fatherhood to another man, right? My wife can't give her motherhood to another woman. And um, it wouldn't involve that complementarity that makes marriage the maximum gift. In other words, part of the beauty of the complementarity is if I'm a man, um, I can, um, to another man, I can't give something that that other man doesn't already have. But to a woman, I can, right? And that's fatherhood and for her motherhood. And so each one is indispensable in that mutual self-gift, right? And part of the beauty of that self-gift is that it overflows, right? It's meant to... Um, and so human sexuality, to be properly integrated, is ordered to marriage and forming a family, right? That's why we've... Got it, right? And it's interesting, our other systems, um, now this, I think, this has been more or less self-evident to mankind, but um, we get very powerfully tempted in the sphere of sexuality. And that's more true today than ever before because of things like the pill, um, uh, methods of contraception. We can disassociate, right, through technology, um, human sexuality from its clear um, purpose in God's plan, right? Which is to twofold. I'm getting ahead of, there's a slide on this later on. Maybe go to that. Yeah, what is the meaning of the conjugal act? The conjugal act has a twofold meaning. Um, unitive, it's expressing the fact that I'm doing this maximum self-gift, right, for life. So it's, it's a sign. The sexual act is a sign of a deeper thing, right? It's a sign of the deeper thing that the, the spouses pledge when they get married, right? And that is to be faithful for the whole of life. So on the one hand, it's a sign of um, that union. But on the other hand, it's equally a sign of God's action in creating a new human person. Not every sexual act is fruitful, but it's potentially fruitful. And therefore, it always carries that um, procreative meaning as well as a unitive meaning. Right? And so the idea is, the key idea governing this whole commandment is that human sexuality is rightly ordered when both of those meanings are preserved um, within marriage. And any place outside of marriage, the sexual act wouldn't have its proper order because it has a meaning. right? And that meaning is I want to, by the very fact that it's a baby-making act, potentially, the, human, the sexual act has a meaning. I want to share with you in a mission that lasts for life. Right? It does, right? We have a 30, some, I should know this, 34, 35-year-old son, and um, just had lunch with the grandkids, and so it doesn't end, right? And that's what's so beautiful. I mean, you don't want it to, those responsibilities of parenting to end. And, and so it's a mission like no other mission that we undertake in life, right? I could, you know, join with somebody in a partnership to teach class, right? Teach RCA together or um, all kinds of other things. But this mission um, is so much more all-encompassing than any other mission that we undertake in life. Yeah. Where was I going with that? 
Yeah, and so the, the key point is though, um, the sexual act um, means that it signifies that total self-gift, and it also signifies an openness to God making that love overflow. Uh, maybe I foresee that won't happen because of um, you know, physical reasons, but it still keeps that meaning unless I block it. And we'll, we'll come back to that later in this class. Okay. Uh, what are the goods of conjugal love? So um, the goods of conjugal love are those same. Um, so it's union, right? So a unity of two, fidelity, and indissolubility, and openness to the procreation of life. Those are the four, we could say, four um, characteristics of a total self-gift, right? So if it's a total self-gift, it's going to be indissoluble. Right? I can't take it back, unlike other friendships. It's going to be faithful, right? It would not be a total self-gift if I were to say, um, I'm giving myself to you, say, Marsha, my wife, but I also want to keep open the ads. Let's say I'm Muslim. I want to keep open the option, or let's say I already have three other wives. Um, that would, again, she ought to slap me because I'm not giving myself totally to her, right? And she's one quarter. And therefore, it's not a total self-gift. In order to be total self-gift, it has to be exclusive. Right? And this is why infidelity, um, adultery, is such um, an affront to the nature of marriage as a total self-gift. Okay? And then um, openness to the procreation of life. Right? So I have to, part of marriage is that it has this tendency to overflow. All right, there might be physical problems that render a person barren, and it can't overflow, which can be a great tragedy and a trial in a marriage. Um, in which case, there are other ways to exercise spiritual fatherhood and motherhood, right? adopting, um, doing other kinds of service. Yeah, and, and the complementarity also. It can't be a total self-gift unless it's somebody who can receive my gift of fatherhood. Right? So it has to be a man and a woman to be a marriage. All right, let me go back. So we said chastity is the correct ordering of our sexuality. Right? And that's going to make a huge difference, how I live that, whether I'm married or not. Right? So if I'm not married, chastity is going to mean not engaging in the sexual act, right? because I'm not in the right place for it. And whereas if I'm married, chastity is also going to be something really important. And it's going to be rightly ordering my sexuality, say, only with my spouse and not with anybody else. Um, and ordering it to the goods of marriage, union, and potentially um, offspring, all right? It's a moral virtue, chastity. So it's part of the virtue of temper. It's one of the cardinal virtues. And right? so the four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, chastity is a part of temperance. So temperance is moderating my um, desires, urges according to right reason. So chastity would be moderating my desires um, according to the right reason of what sexuality is for in God's plan. Okay? And it's, so it's a moral virtue. We get it like other moral virtues, like the cardinal virtues, by practice. Um, and that means we lose it by an opposite practice. Right? So if I do, um, let's say, thousands of unchaste acts, acts against chastity, 
I get a contrary vice, unchastity or lust. And the problem, hard to, so, and the problem with a vice is that the deeper and the more acts I do against, say, the right order, the more I'm going to get an inclination to do similar disordered acts. And so the classic case of this is addiction. And in every addiction, through many disordered acts, it gets such that it becomes very hard or impossible, say, an alcoholic, to, um, to exercise temperance once he's started to drink. Right? And the same thing happens in the sexual sphere. Right? There are sexual addictions that come from disordered acts done repeatedly. But the, the, so that's the negative side, the sobering side. But the positive side is that the, the same thing works on the positive, right? The more rightly ordered, so if I resist a temptation, that makes me stronger tomorrow when the next temptation. And if I resist it 10 times in a row, 10 times stronger, et cetera. But we, I think we know by human experience that that's not enough to succeed in chastity in this life because we get very tempted. And so um, it's also a grace and a gift of God. Um, Thanks be to God. And so we can pray when we're tempted um, against the Sixth Commandment for God's help, right? And he will respond. But it requires cooperation, and it won't magically take away disordered inclinations that we've acquired, say, either through... So part of disordered inclinations, everybody's got them, right? It's not as if there's anybody who's spared, except for Mary. And that had to do with her immaculate conception. Right? And Jesus likewise. But every other human being who's ever lived has disordered inclinations. And they can become more disordered by how we live. But part of it is also due to our temperament. Because of our different temperaments, we experience different temptations more strongly than others. Right? Some people, by their temperament, are more tempted to anger, let's say. Others to, um, to lust. Others to um, pride, etc. But then it's what we actually do with that that's far more important than just our temperament. All right? so, um, so it's a grace and a fruit of the Holy Spirit that we need in this area. And the sacrament of penance. Right? So the, um, thanks be to God, there's frequent confession available. So if I find myself falling frequently, so this sphere is um, any confessor will, who, who hears confessions regularly will tell you that it's very often you find people coming frequently with repeated falls in the area of human sexuality, right? It might be pornography or, or masturbation or different, whatever it is. And um, this, we're in some way especially wounded in this area. And it, it's, on the one hand, um, it can be good for humility, right? It's humbling that I need God's, this shows me I need God's grace in a way that I might be blind to in other areas of my life where I need it no less. These, so often we speak sins against Sixth Commandment or sins of the flesh. They're not the gravest sins. They can, dis, right, they can produce terrible disorder in society and the family, but they're not the gravest sins. Right? The gravest sins are those against, the, against God and things like murder. They're not the gravest sins usually because we're as particularly weak in this area Right? And where we're um, weak, um, culpability can be somewhat lessened, especially if I have a, a, a let's say I have a, a disordered inclination, that, like the alcoholic. Right? That disordered inclination is a bad thing, but it does somewhat diminish 
one's culpability. Okay. So what's involved in the virtue of chastity? So virtue of chastity is an apprenticeship, the catechism says, because you never fully get there, right? So it's an apprentice. So you're always an apprentice in this matter, even right when you're 65 or whatever. And, and, and it's an apprenticeship in self-mastery, right? So again, we never get that full self-mastery. And that self-mastery is part of freedom, right? So I'm not free if I'm, let's say, if I have an addiction and I can't stop myself. That's a huge lack of freedom in myself, and that's tragic, right? And so chastity is to help us to be more free. The chaste person is much freer than the person with, let's say, a sexual addiction, right? Because the, and the reason for this, the, the chaste person who has self-mastery can give himself. Whereas if I don't have chastity, I get married. I, and let's suppose I, now I come into a marriage, things like this happen all the time today, with um, a pornography addiction or something like that. Um, I'm not free to totally give myself to my spouse. Right? You can't, and you can't give what you don't have. And therefore, self-mastery Having chastity enables me to freely give myself to my spouse, right, and, and, and form a healthy family, right? And so chastity is for that positive good of self-gift. It's a beautiful thing. And there's a reason, I think, why we call the opposite dirty, right? So lust or, um, is dirty because it, it's disorder. In other words, it doesn't have the right balance that would enable me to give myself. Yeah, and obviously it's not something we um, achieve in a day, but we need continuing formation. All right, what are the means to, to aid in chastity? Grace of God, first and foremost. In other words, being in a state of grace, and that means receiving the sacraments and receiving um, frequent communion and the sacrament of reconciliation or penance. Frequent penance, we'll talk about that later. It might be, um, the church only requires once a year, but frequent receiving of the sacrament might be once a month, Something like that, once every six weeks. Um, but that's up to, uh, could be twice a month. That's up to the individual. <clears throat> now, the, uh, the rules with receiving the, the uh, sacrament of the Eucharist, uh -huh. you can't be in a state of grace. And right, that's right. I have to be in a state of grace. Okay, so if one was to fall into mm -hmm. you could only okay. Receive communion. That's right. So um, there can be an exception, but for basic purposes, that's right. So just an example. Um, let's suppose I've um, fallen. Um, I watch pornography and masturbation, whatever, and I um, repent of it. So the first thing I have to do, so the first, whatever the sin is, any sin that's grave that I recognize I've done, what's the first thing I have to do? And yes, and in that prayer, say, I'm sorry. So we call it repentance. So repentance is the one, and, and it's the one by far the most important thing that I need to do. And part of repentance is being sorry that I did it, but also resolving to avoid it in the future and resolving to take some reasonable steps. It doesn't mean that I won't do it again, right? Because let's say I look back in my life and I see I've fallen a hundred times in this matter. Um, and it's likely, therefore, that I'll fall again. But I don't want to, and I'm resolving not to. And I'm also going to intelligently... So let's say um, 
I know myself, and I know that I fall into this particular sin, more commonly on certain types of occasions, I don't know, business trip or whatever it may be. And so I should take some measure and have some kind of plan to avoid that on the next time. Right? And if I make, and I tell the Lord I'm sorry, I make some, a resolve like that, and I do it out of love for God, the sin is forgiven right there. But I ought to make a plan to go to confession as soon as I can. Right? But that doesn't mean calling up Monsignor Breyer at 3 in the morning. Right? <laughs> that wouldn't, that's not necessary. Right? What's necessary is that I say to God, I'm sorry. And that I go you know, next Saturday, whenever it is a reasonable time. And um, before I go, I shouldn't receive communion. And so you, what you do is you'll make a spiritual communion, like hopefully you're doing right now. Right? In other words, say to God that I would love to receive you. I want to receive you. I'm sorry about my sin. I um, want to receive you into my heart, and he will come and bless you. Okay. All right? Yeah. That's a, um, the exception is for priests. Priests who, let's suppose a priest um, falls into some grave sin and um, has to celebrate Mass. He's got to receive communion. And so um, what he has to do is the same as we have to do, make an act of contrition out of love for God with a resolve. Um, but obviously he can celebrate Mass even if he's not able to get to confession. But for us, there's no rush. Better to go to confession first. Okay? So I'm understanding this correctly. Is it your understanding that you fall out of the state of grace? Mm-hmm. It has to be a grave sin, right? Not every sin. Right. So I'm impatient with my wife and a little thing. Right, I'm more open. Yeah. That's right, but with the intention to go in its proper time, so, right? But because we've repented in our hearts and prayed, then we're back in the That's right. God doesn't wait until you actually, because sometimes people ask this question, what if you know, I get in a car accident on my way to confession and I die? Um, do, does that mean I go to hell? No. God cares about the heart and... Um, he anticipates his grace. It's like baptism of desire. In other words, those of you who aren't baptized and are going to be baptized in the Easter Vigil, you can already be desiring the graces of baptism, and God is already giving them. You still get baptized, though, right? So it's the same kind of thing. So I guess my question is, just so yeah. I understand that confession is a sacrament, mm-hmm. so it's required as part of the Christian mm-hmm. But if we can return to a state of grace without going to confession, mm-hmm. What's the point? Okay. The point of the... um, Fantastic question. Thank you. The point of the sacrament isn't just that it's the only possible way to get grace. The point of the sacrament is that it's the ordinary and most fitting and best way to get more grace. So even if I get forgiven by praying to God right right after I commit the mortal sin and making good act of contrition, um, I'll get a lot more grace if I go to confession. And if I don't go to confession because I think, well, what do I need that sacrament for? I've committed a grave sin right there. And so, and so I would need to go to confession for that one. Um, does that make sense? In other words, having a reverence for the sacraments is a good thing, and having contempt for them would be um, a sin against the faith. Okay? So even though it's not, I think it's really important. In other words, the sacraments aren't just because um, we need them in, to get to heaven, period, but they're Christ giving himself to us. Christ aiding us. So every good confession, Christ, let's suppose I confess, um, say, some habitual sin. He'll give a particular grace in confession to help me to avoid falling into it. Okay? So it's not just about getting forgiven, but also positively about him helping us more 
and having an encounter that's more intimate and personal with him. Right? That's the thing about, the, we'll talk about this, I'm sorry, we're getting out of order, but um, confession can be daunting, right? Because you're telling your sins to a human being and you want them to think well of you and you don't want to say this thing and it's, it, it, yes, everybody hates being in confession line. But um, there's nothing more beautiful from experience than being on the other side, coming out of the confessional, um, having um, unburned myself. Um, and so it's, it makes a, a special, more intimate encounter with Christ to have to say it sacramentally out loud to a human being who's representing Jesus Christ. Thank you. Great question. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, but I was told that communion is a gift of God to us. So um any like oh my god, I don't know the words for this. Uh-huh. Only if I'm aware of a mortal sin that I haven't yet confessed, right? Only in that case. Otherwise, um, I can receive any time. The reason for this, so the way to think about it is, we'll talk about later about the Eucharist, but the Eucharist is like marriage. It's a marriage. Communion is a total self-gift. So we're saying the marital act has this unitive and procreative meaning. Holy communion likewise has a unit of meaning. With whom? With Jesus. He's giving himself even more than I'm able to give myself in marriage to my spouse. Because in marriage, I mean, the conjugal act is just giving a part of me, I mean, biologically. But in holy communion, I receive Jesus whole and entire. He's given himself and held nothing back. But if I'm not giving myself to him, let's say I know he wants me to live differently. Let's say I'm living in adultery. And I know he doesn't like it. And Gravely, let's say I'm destroying somebody else's marriage, um, I can't receive him honestly because receiving Holy Communion means a total self-gift that's mutual and I'm holding myself back from what I know he wants of me. And so it would be a lie. And it's similar with the sexual act. So there's a beautiful analogy here. Fornication, having sex with somebody I'm not married to is actually a lie. Why is that? Because of what we just said, the act has a meaning, and the meaning is I'm giving myself to you whole and entire, um, holding nothing back for life. And if I'm not doing that, if I'm doing a one-night stand or something like that, then it's an utter lie. It doesn't, it, right? The, the, this is something that's hard for us, I think, to understand in our culture, because we're not accustomed to thinking um, about things like sexuality as a symbol or sign. I mean, my... But the fact is, there's no more, sim no more powerful symbol built into human life than um, the sexual act, right? the conjugal act. And it, there's no more consequence greater in human life than the normal consequence of the baby-making act. Right? And so, that's, so the, the two, it's, I think it's really helpful to see those two together. Right? I don't want to receive, like, let's suppose I've gravely offended my wife. Let's suppose I commit adultery, God forbid. And um, I can't just then expect her you know, to have sex with me um, because I've offended the relationship. 
Um, and it needs to be healed first. Does that make sense? And so it's similar if I've gravely offended Jesus through something, I have to heal it first. And that's the reason for confession. In other words, the reason for confession before Holy Communion is because Holy Communion is so much bigger than we normally think that it is. And it's the same with the sexual act. It's so much bigger than we tend to think that it is. Okay? Uh-huh. And on the confession thing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder than you would think because it has to do somewhat with the purity of your motive. It, and if it's, but the, but the other thing too, again, I'm sure we're going to. Okay. But the, the other thing too is it's easy to say, oh, I'm sorry, God, and then I feel forgiven, so it's fine. And that yeah. might be real. That, but because it's yeah. kind of all in, the, in your own heart and in your own psyche, it's really easy later on to say, am I just making all these feelings of forgiveness up to make myself feel? Yeah, you might doubt it, but I do want to push back on that just a teeny bit. Yep. Perfect contrition is not, none of us can do it by ourselves. Right. And, I, and that's because I need grace to tell God I love him and therefore to be sorry out of love for him. God doesn't withhold that grace to anyone who seeks it. And that's why anyone at any time, nobody can say, I can't make an act of perfect contrition. I don't have the moral strength. It's true, you don't, but God will give it to you. And so that's not, we shouldn't think that that's impossible or even very difficult. The hard part is actually the resolve not to do it again because it, it can very easily happen that I made plans to do it next week and the week after and the week after that. And that's the problem. I have to cancel those plans. That's the hard part. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, we're going down a slippery slope. <laughs> okay. But uh, the difference between contrition and penance. Ah, okay. None, none. I'm just using, fantastic. I'm using them as synonyms, right? Contrition and repentance. They mean the same. Right? Both of them mean, I'm sorry that I did it, and I'm making a resolve to avoid it. And then we use this word perfect or imperfect. Imperfect contrition is I'm sorry I did this and I made a resolve to avoid it because I don't want to go to hell for all eternity. Perfect contrition is, it's true, I don't want to go to hell for all eternity, but I also don't want to offend God who loves me and died for me. If, that, if I have that moment, motive of love in addition to, let's say, fear of hell, then that's what we call perfect contrition. That's why I say it's, that's not the hard part, the perfect part. The hard part is I have to resolve to break with it, right? Let's suppose I'm living with somebody I'm not married to and I'm having disordered you know, sexual relations with them. I have to make a resolve to, let's say, move out or something like that. Right? that that's a, a key part of the contrition. So imperfect is the fear of the consequences. Yeah, both of them are good because both involve a resolve. But it's, not, it's obviously imperfect to only be thinking, see, imperfect contrition is just looking out at me. I don't, I don't want to suffer for eternity. And that already implies that I have faith, right? And that God is a just judge. And, but perfect, I mean, it just makes sense. If I know that Jesus loves me to death, how could I not be bothered by letting him down, by um, breaking that friendship with him? That's right, that's right, that's it. Okay. All right. Yeah, so we don't only mean in this commandment, not commit adultery, but all different kinds of sexual sins. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, so here. What are some principal sins against chastity? Right? So um, adultery right, would be especially grave because it's against the good of somebody else's family. Right? So adultery is, or it might even be my own family, right? So it's the same. Either I'm, if I'm um, having sex with somebody who's married to somebody else, I'm breaking up, potentially at least, the great good of that family. So it's in that sense, it's after, it's not as, it's graver to take somebody's life, but after taking somebody's life, taking away the good of their family life is a very great evil. And then would come their property, and that's why the seventh commandment is thou shalt not steal, and then there would be their good name or reputation, and that's the eighth commandment, right, not to lie. So the sixth commandment is rightly situated after the good of life, but more primary and important than the other goods of property and reputation, okay? Um, so adultery, but then masturbation. Why? Now, sometimes people think, well, why is that a sin? Because there, I'm not, and I, I mean, it's not like rape. That's true. But um, if we look at what the sexual act means, it's relational, right? It's, a, it's the sign of a total self-gift. And so masturbation is disordered because it's using something that's meant to be a total self-gift to another person, signifying a union um, in which um, there's no other person at all. And it generally goes together with fantasizing about somebody that I'm not married to. Um, and so that would be the disorder there. Obviously, it's not nearly as disordered as if one adds into disordered sexuality against someone else's consent, right? And that becomes the gravest sin against chastity, would be rape or other kinds of sexual abuse in which consent is not given. That's worse, right? But it doesn't make um, the um, sexual sins in which um, there isn't the violation of somebody else's consent doesn't make them right. Does that? No, that sexual sin, just like any other kind of, any other commandment, is going to have a huge gradation of gravity. Some sexual sins are far graver than others precisely because they go against chastity in a more direct way, I'm sorry, charity in a more direct way. Okay, yeah, so obviously rape is going to be the worst. Homosexual acts, and um, why is that? Again, it's simply because they can't express that total self-gift. If the right place for sexual acts is marriage and has this twofold meaning of union and um, procreation, and if I'm doing it as a man with another man, it can't possibly have either of the meanings, right? It's easier to say it can't possibly have the procreative meaning, but it can't have the unitive meaning in its full sense either because I can't have a maximum Friendship in the way that we spoke about it, in which I give my paternity um, with another man. Right? So this is why homosexual acts are disordered in the sense that they're outside of God's plan for marriage. A whole different question, though, is what about this particular person who happens to experience same-sex attraction? Right? That experience of a disordered inclination is not something right, that is sinful. That's a temptation. The fact that I experience disordered inclinations, whether because of my temperament or because of my past history, right now, let's suppose I've repented of that past history, but I still have these disordered inclinations today. That disordered inclination is not a sin, right? Because it's not voluntary. And it can be the occasion of great merit. 
right? So if I experience, let's say, same-sex attraction, I don't ask for this, um, but I'm experiencing it, um, by um, carrying that cross, I'm meriting more grace, and I'm offering a sacrifice that is meritorious, right? It's just similar to um, somebody with distorted inclinations that are not homosexual, but heterosexual. I equally have to sacrifice acting out on those as well, right? And um, how does that make sense to everyone? In other words, being tempted isn't a sin. It's what I do with it. Being tempted can be an occasion of a lot of merit and grace. Right? God allows us to be tempted, and he wouldn't allow it if it weren't to, to be for our good. And therefore, I can know in every case, I can pray and be helped. Ah. Uh-huh. But then they dress in mm-hmm. and have right. and Well, you look on every person well, right? In other words, so um this is a difficult so I can't this is above my um knowledge level. And the church doesn't have a direct um, position on what's the cause of something like same-sex attraction. Is it biological? Does it have to do with trauma and experience in life? It's reasonable to think that both are involved. But regardless of that, we still want to... um, Every human being is equally made in the image and likeness of God with the same dignity, but we all have different crosses. And therefore, experiencing... um, same-sex attraction can be a very difficult cross because it can make very difficult a great good, right? The good of marriage and family and children. But it's not the only thing of that, right? Life is full of, right? There are all kinds of handicaps that we might have. Um, And in each case, we still, I mean, that's what Jesus says, that um, if you want to be my disciple, you have to carry your cross, right? And that's the one that he's given us. And we're not given to choose them, right? He chooses them for us. So, but does God know everything? Yes, of course, God knows everything. And he um, does permit there to be all kinds of handicaps in life. And we should never think he's permitted this because he hates me. It's the opposite. I should know that he's permitted this because he loves me. And there's a good in this, even if I can't see it, right? I mean, just the loss of you know, someone born blind, someone... Um, all kinds of things. We want to think that everything works to the good for those who love God. No exceptions. Right? That's from St. Paul, Romans 8. Um, but yeah, no, in particular questions, I, I can't answer that. And so everyone's called to chastity, and that's going to, again, look different if I'm married, if I'm not. But again, within marriage, there can be times in which one has to live complete kindness for various reasons, right? If I'm you know, working abroad or wh- whatever. And so we don't have a right to sexual activity, right? That's not, um, we, um, that's not a God-given right. That's um, 
a particular calling, right? That's a calling for those who are called to uh, Theresa Fenn. Okay, yeah, and fornication, that simply would be two, um, so we, again, two um, unattached people by, by consent, right? So not, that's still against God's plan, right? Because it's not treating sexuality as the sign of a total self-gift. And the result when you, um, so let's take the Eucharist example. If I receive communion habitually when I'm in a state of mortal sin, what's going to be the, uh, the biggest problem there is, is for me. I ha I've received a great gift, and I haven't regarded it for what it is. So it loses its power to mean what it really is, a sign of a mutual self-gift. And it's the same with human sexuality. Questions on particular? Mm -hmm. I have a question because I know I'm going to get asked this, but okay. I know in this situation. Okay, great. If you are, say, a homosexual couple and you have been married okay. okay. if you were to want to join the church, what would be the expectation as far as confession and communion? Yeah, no, great question. So the um, it would be... So first of all, the church doesn't recognize and can't recognize. We'll look at that when we look at the sacrament of matrimony. But, but let me just give you the reason in a nutshell. Matrimony is a... So all the sacraments are signs. They're sacred signs of Christ. And matrimony is the sign of the union of Christ with his church. Right? So Christ is a, a bridegroom. And the bride is the whole church. And so every married couple is a living, walking sign of Christ and the church. But Christ and the church, they're not like two men or two women. It's complementary and incre incredibly fruitful, right? We're the children, or if you, at the Easter Vigil, you'll become the children of that union of Christ and his bride. Um, and so in order to reflect that, it can't be two men or two women. So that's why um, a homosexual marriage can't be the sacrament of marriage. So if it's not married, then they're in the situation of other people. And so um, John Paul II uses this expression that sexual relations are only right, there's only one place in which they're rightly ordered, and that's within marriage, and marriage precisely in, in this sense. So yes, of course they can, people like that um, can become Catholic, but it would be like anyone else. Let's suppose I'm you know, heterosexual, and I'm living with somebody that I'm not married to. If I come in in RCA, I can't just, I shouldn't think I should, can just get baptized and confirmed and receive communion while I still continue having sexual relations outside its proper place. So in this sense, it's, it's no different for two homosexuals or two non-homosexuals living a sexual relationship outside of its proper place. So is that impossible? to resolve to live as, let's say, brothers in a situation. No, it's not impossible. There's an interesting film done by, there's an apostolate called Courage. So it's a Catholic apostolate that's um, um, directed to people with same-sex attraction who want to live the life of the church and therefore want to live chastity given their particular cross. And so Courage ministers to people. And there was a film that they put out called The Desire of the Everlasting Hills. It's about 10 years ago. And I saw it, and it, it was fantastic. It was following 
three couples, so three homosexual couples who had, were Catholics, became fallen away Catholics, lived different kinds of um, disordered sexual lives, and had a conversion experience. In one case, it was a man who had had something like I don't know, hundreds of sexual partners um, um, during the time in which AIDS, he didn't get AIDS, which he saw as a kind of miracle. He was living, chaste, um, not chaste, he was living with one man, um, and um, he um, turned on the television and turned on, by accident, EWTN, and there's a nun there, Mother Angelica, and um, anyway, he, he um, became really fascinated and um, was brought to a conversion experience, goes to confession, and um, in his particular case, he felt it was okay for him to keep on living with that man, um, but now just simply as friends. And so, yes, he could receive um, confession, and other people might have to move out. Um, and you couldn't act as if you were married, right, in a case of somebody, let's say, who's civilly been married. So there would, you'd have to look at it case by case. But God always calls, and nobody can say that's impossible for me. Does that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, similar, take the church in Africa. Let's suppose you're evangelist in a culture that has polygamy. And so what do I do if I'm married to four people and I want to become Catholic, right? And I'm in RCA. I have to regard only one of them as a valid marriage and not the others, right? And so conversion requires, I mean, Jesus was very clear about this, right? Repent and for the kingdom of God is at hand. And it, everybody has something to repent of. Thank you. That was a fantastic question. All right, when is it moral to regulate births? And it, we'll come back to this also in the sacrament of matrimony class. But, um, so the regulation of births um, would be, let's say a married couple, um, it would be um, prudent and responsible for the couple to speak together about you know, family size. And obviously it's not just up to the parents. God sometimes withholds the gift of fertility. Other times he gives it abundantly. Um, but it's reasonable for couples to have a, a discussion, right, between themselves and with God. So this is important because it takes, there's this phrase, takes three to get married. It also takes three to have a baby, right? God is the one who, in fact, in every case, creates the soul of the new baby out of nothing, right, and fuses it into that body, and he's the one who therefore gives life. Um, and so it's something that the couple wanted to, to discern with God, right? And there can be reasons for wanting to regulate births, right? In other words, one can... Um, have all kinds of, you know, might be um, health reasons, um, you have eight children already, whatever it may be, and there can be reasons for thinking now is not the right time for another birth, right? That's what's called responsible parenthood. And that's a prudential question for the couple together with God. Another question, let's suppose the couple discerns, in this case, it's not prudent for us to have a, a child right now. Can I use contraception to avoid conceiving? And there the Catholic Church teaches no. Why is that? Um, the reason for that is because um, we said before that the conjugal act has a twofold meaning, unitive and procreative, and God wants them kept together. Um, and so um, what, what I can't do is try to keep the unitive meaning of the sexual act while deliberately blocking its fruitfulness. So whether it's by the pill, by the condom, or other device. In other, words, to, in other words, it's doing the conjugal act, say within marriage, but blocking its fruitfulness 
deliberately. All right, can I do that? The church teaches no. And yes, this is obviously a controversial Catholic teaching. It, um, the, the Pope who taught this, he's not the only one, it's something the church has taught from the beginning, but in a particular way, Paul VI, who was Pope in 1968, has an encyclical called Humane Vitae. in which he um, <clears throat> um, spoke about um, the conjugal act needs to have both of its meanings preserved. Both of those meanings are preserved if I foresee that the conjugal act won't be fruitful um, because of a woman's cycle. In other words, if, one, um, if a couple wants to avoid having children and it's the infertile part of the woman's cycle, having conjugal relations in that situation wouldn't be contraception. So we call that natural family planning. And it, often known by the acronym NFP. Natural family planning is something that in past centuries was simply not known because the woman's cycle was not, I mean, it's kind of amazing. In, until the 20th century, I think the woman's cycle was um, not um, scientifically known. Um, but today, it's possible to know with great exactitude or um, considerable exactitude um, when um, a woman is in her fertile period and when not. And making use of that knowledge enables one to um, uh, have the conjugal act during the infertile periods if one is seeking to avoid conception um, or the other way around. So my son and daughter-in-law, and we're having trouble conceiving, and so they use natural family planning to conceive. In other words, to know more precisely when she was most fertile and so as to um, seek to um, conceive. Um, so it can be used in either way. Um, and it's something, though, that requires training. I'm not, you know, that's not my field. I'm not certified in that. But um, the diocese has um, um, training for natural family planning. And usually it's part of mar marriage prep marriage preparation classes to tell the couple about it and to, um, to invite them to uh, find out more about it. Um, now, very often people push back at this and say, ah, what's the difference, right? Um, the contracepting couple and the couple that's practicing natural family planning have the same intention. That may be true, right? In other words, that, that it could well be that a couple um, that is um, uh, contracepting has the exact same intention to avoid another birth for very good reasons. But the way you go about it makes a difference. I mean, this is going back a month or so. We looked at the three um, sources of morality, and we said the moral object, the intention, and the circumstances. In order for an act to be good, all three need to be good. So let's say the circumstances are such that it's not prudent to have another child right now, for whatever reason. Um, and so the circumstances, two different families might be the same. Let's say their intention is the same. Still, the moral object is really important. The moral object in the case of the contracepting couple is to make use of the conjugal act and to block its fruitfulness. Whereas the other couple, their moral object would be abstaining during part of, right, during the, the fruitful period. And so it would be not doing something. And, um, why is that? So let's take the analogy that we did with the Eucharist. Um, 
it can show abstaining from something isn't the same as making a disordered use of it. It keeps, when I abstain, um, let's take, um, I'm, I've fallen into mortal sin, I haven't been able to go to confession yet, um, I go to church and I don't receive communion, that's actually pleasing to Jesus because my abstaining is showing reverence to him. And so likewise, if for whatever reasons I'm not able to, con it's not prudent to conceive right now, abstaining is sh showing reverence to God's gift so that I can, we, the couple can preserve its full meaning for when um, that is open. Self-disclosure here. Um, my wife and I were married as atheists um, 10 years, nine years before we came into the Catholic Church, or um, that's not right, seven, seven or eight years. And um, so we, during that time, we had no idea about this teaching, and we contracepted. And part of um, the result of that was that it was most, I think, um, negative in its effect on me because it meant that in our relations, I just had, was oblivious to her fertility or non-fertility. Um, whereas a couple that's practicing natural family planning, the husband can't simply, right? I, I now have to look at my wife in a totally different way. Um, seeing her with the gift of fertility, and yet it's a gift that isn't always active. Anyway, so that was, um, and after, after we became Catholic, we followed this teaching, and it made our conjugal relation of a totally different meaning because now those two meanings were going together and it was the recognition that God was also involved in this act. Contraception, in some way, it's like putting a no trespassing sign to God, right? Because it's saying, Lord, you stay out of this with your fruitfulness. And yet I'm making use of the act. And so I'm taking away some of the unitive power. So John Paul II spoke about this a lot. He was maybe the... You've probably heard of his theology of the body. So John Paul II came after Paul VI, and um, he gave a, a whole series of Wednesday audiences on human sexuality called The Theology of the Body. It's a masterpiece. They, um, it's a big, thick book. He gave something like, I don't know, 150 of these Wednesday audiences on this topic. And it was all ending up with the question of contraception. And his fundamental point was um, a couple that contracepts is in fact harming the power of, um, of the sexual act to express its unit of meaning. Because in effect, what I'm saying is, I'm giving myself to you, but not all of me. I'm not giving my fatherhood to you in this sexual act. Whereas the couple that's practicing nat natural family planning is abstaining. And so I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not giving you my, um, staying for part of the month, right? For um, periodic abstaining. And so that very sacrifice actually helps my, to give myself fully when, um, when, it, when it's fitting or appropriate. Questions on that? Last year when I was teaching this, um, one of the people in the class asked if she could present on this. Um, she was the daughter of a Lutheran pastor and um, um, she had, I guess her interesting thoughts had come, because she went, her husband was Catholic, and so they, in marriage prep, they talked about natural family planning. She found out, this was, she did a so much better job than I can do, because she was looking at it from um, the point of view of a, a young married person um, living this teaching. But anyway, questions on this? 
Okay. 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 You know, great question. St. Paul talks about that in First Letter of Corinthians, chapter seven, and he gives general counsel to married couples. Sometimes it's good to practice abstinence by mutual consent to give yourself over to prayer or something like that. But what's the key phrase there? By mutual consent. So what I can't do is say to my wife, um, I think I'm going to practice abstinence the rest of my life. Um, ciao. Um, hope you. Hope you don't mind, <laughs> right? So, I mean, because marriage is about total self-gift, right? So I can't take back a gift that I've already given. But yes, by mutual consent, one can do that. And that's what happens in natural family planning, right? By mutual consent, the couples would be, um, and it is, so you have to, there's a training that you have to go through. And, but with the right training um, and with right practice, it is, um, um, roughly as successful as other means of birth control. Um, but it, it requires, obviously, more effort in some way. But it also means that you're not taking some kind of drug that's changing your body and your hormonal system. Uh, okay. Um, artificial, so another thing against the Sixth Commandment is artificial, so um, uh, in vitro fertilization. So what do you, uh, it can happen that couples have the opposite problem. They're not able to conceive, and this is a huge burden for them. Um, obviously adoption is a good thing. Any medical means that can help the couple to conceive is good, right? But um, in vitro fertilization is something that the church teaches is not rightly ordered for two reasons. Um, the more important reason is that in practice, it involves creating lots of um, embryos that get discarded or frozen. And those are human beings. And so you're, um, um, so that's just like, in other words, it involves in effect either abortion or freezing somebody indefinitely who is a person with a human soul. So that's the biggest disorder of it. But even if that weren't the case, even if they had the technology to just make one embryo um, and then um, um, it's still, um, it goes against the union of those two meanings of the procreative act, right? So in God's plan, every human being is meant to be the fruit of a, an embrace that's also physical. In other words, human being, God, God's plan for the human person is that um, every human being comes out of the conjugal act that has this unitive and procreative meaning. And so in, in vitro fertilization, very often one's seeking only the procreative meaning and um, it can't, it's losing the unitive meaning. Um, I mean, it might be, so very often in vitro fertilization involves getting somebody else's sperm. I don't, I, they're, they become the biological father and yet they're um, totally extraneous to the marriage, right? So that would make it even more disordered. And so there are lots of reasons why the church teaches that one should not make use of in vitro fertilization for fertility problems. What about somebody who's been, so this is a difficulty when, um, say, in a Catholic school, you know, somebody's a theology professor teaching on this, and you've got a student in the class who was born that way, conceived that way. 
And so there we would say, well, obviously, every human being, whether they were conceived in vitro fertilization or any other way, is, has the same human dignity equally made in the image like of God and in no way can be discriminated against or and should be regarded as a great gift of God, right? Every human person. But that doesn't mean just like somebody who was born out of a rape, right? They, they don't lose their dignity because of that, but that doesn't make rape okay. Questions on that? How should children be considered as supreme gift of marriage? But there isn't a right to have a child, right? It's a gift of God. Okay. Yeah, what can spouses do when they don't have children? All kinds of other ways of exercising um, spiritual fatherhood and motherhood. I had a beautiful example of this. Um, I was speaking at a conference, and there was another speaker. There's two of us speaking together. And the other speaker was the founder of Christendom College, and his wife was the founder of Seton Homeschool. All right, our son um, went through Seton Homeschool and Christendom College. And so um, this couple wasn't able to conceive, they, so they had fertility issue. And so instead of having children, they dedicated themselves to education. And so in some way, this couple was, were parents from our son, um, not directly, but um, through spiritual fatherhood and motherhood. Right there, there are tons of ways of doing that. Questions about, um, so the ninth commandment is simply extending that to um, fantasy. Right? In other words, if I shouldn't do the act, let's say, of adultery, I shouldn't desire and plan it out and fantasize it in my mind. Right? Um, so that would be the ninth commandment. And that's how we um, um, purify the heart. Right? If, I don't, if, I don't, um, if I'm not careful about fantasy life, it's, I'm not going to be able to grow in chastity. I'm gonna, so we got six minutes. I'm going to go on to the other seventh and eighth commandments. Seventh, any, any other question on the sixth commandment or the ninth commandment? Okay, seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal. So this came up earlier with a, a question that was, so you, it's never right to steal, but if somebody is totally destitute and um, the only way that they can feed their children is by taking something that, isn't theirs, that's not actually theft. Because God wills um, the goods of the earth to um, be available to everyone. And he, so if I'm taking what I need to survive, that's not stealing. All right? Um, and so the, the Catechism says, Seventh Commandment requires respect for the universal destination and distribution of goods. Um, but also, it requires respect for private property. So it's both, right? So what I, I can't, so we lived in, in Argentina in a year in which they had a terrible depression, sort of like the Great Depression here, the year 2000. And a lot of grocery stores got broken into. In fact, our local grocery store was um, kind of sacked. And um, what did people take? Um, yeah, I suppose some food items, but the principal thing they, that got taken was appliances and um, luxury items. And so that would be theft, right? But if I'm taking bread to feed my family, then that's not theft in a situation like that. But anyway, that's a rare case. Okay. So the, the seventh commandment is bigger than simply thou shalt not steal, just like other commandments. It also includes living justice 
in, in social circumstances. So paying a just wage would be part of thou shalt not steal. Right? So if I have employees, um, giving them decent working conditions would be part of the seventh commandment. Uh, serving the poor is part of the seventh commandment. Okay, right to private property. Yes, there is a right to private property, and that's for the good of the family, right? Um, and this is part of the order, right? So the sixth commandment becomes before the seventh commandment because the seventh commandment in some ways is ordered to the sixth. In other words, if I want to um, form a family and have children, I need to be able to have private property so that I can plan for the future and provide for my family, right? And that's why taking somebody else's patrimony that's for their family is gravely against right order. Okay, so what does the Seventh Commandment require? Res it's obviously respecting the private property of others, but it re requires also respect for promises made, contracts agreed to, right? So if I made a contract with my employer to work, et cetera, I have to abide by that. And reparation for injustice committed, restitution. So this can come up in confession. Suppose um, I've been know, stealing from my employer at work. Um, I can't just go to, so let's suppose I go to, and I suppose this bothers me. I want to receive communion. Um, and let's suppose I've stolen some, you know, a considerable amount of money, let's say $10,000 from the workplace. What do I have to do? I, I'd have to go to confession. But the confessor, if I just say I stole, he should ask me, did you steal a considerable amount? And if I say yes, um, he should ask me um, how, if there's some plan I could have to make restitution. I don't have to turn myself in but I would have to restore it insofar as I can to its rightful owner, right? I can't just say, um, go to confession, I stole $10,000, um, good, I absolve you, um, done, right? And there's still a disorder that I have to repair. Now, it might be that I, I would lose my job if I confessed to stealing. I could um, return it in another way, like um, working overtime without asking for pay or something like that. Right? I still need, what if I've stolen from a grocery store or something and I can't, again, I can't simply restore it. Um, if I can't restore it or a pickpocket who doesn't know who he's stolen from, you can give to a charity, but you still always would have to make restitution. And so that's not, um, I can't get absolved. In other words, I'm, I can't have proper repentance if I don't want to restore it. I think that's common sense. Um, Respect for creation, right? So if, um, that would be part of the Seventh Commandment. Oh, I got two. Work, work done poorly, um, tax evasion, right? Again, it depends how much. But if I've significantly um, engaged in tax evasion, that's something that can be a grave sin, right? If it involves a, because if everybody were to do that, um, our country would come undone. Um, and so something like tax evasion can be gravely against the common good of society. So there, too, I don't have to turn myself in, but I might um, pay more generously the next year or something so as to make restitution. And business fraud, similar, right? Um, usury. Now, usury is charging um, way too much interest, making um, a prey on somebody's poverty. It was somebody who needs to get a loan in dire circumstances, and I you know, charge 50% interest, that would be usury. Um, a bank, that's not usury, right? Charging you know, a reasonable amount of interest. Does that make sense to everyone? Um, 
And so all of this, there's tons more to say about this, but all of this is what we call the social um, doctrine of the church. And it's about social justice in society. Right? And it's a beautiful part of the church's teaching. And there are lots of documents about these things. Start for the last 150 years, practically, and since the late 19th century. So it's not the church's teaching that you know, private property at all costs, like complete laissez-faire capitalism. But it's that we have a responsibility in economic life for others. Yeah, so work is a duty and a right, but again, and, and a means of sanctification. Um, so work, it, it's something that even in the garden, there would have been work. So work is a good thing, right? Work also has an, an aspect of the sweat of the brow, right, outside of Eden. But work in itself is a very good thing, right? And we want to sanctify our work by doing it for God and for the common good of others. I'm going to let you read the rest of these. Um, and then the, the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not lie. But again, what it's principally commanding is lie, what it's prohibiting are lies that gravely damage others, right? Lives that de lies that defame or um, involve the loss of the good name of my neighbor, right? That's the kind of thing that can be a mortal sin, right? A little white lie is not something that I have to um, not receive communion for, right? But a lie in which I gravely harm somebody else, then yes. And there, too, I need to make restitution, right? If I've defamed somebody publicly, what do I need to do? Publicly restore their good name with, as, insofar as possible, the same kind of publicity. Okay? And so that would be restitution. And, uh, and we'll leave it there. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for, um, for your law. Give us the grace to live it through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So you can bring questions on this next time, and then we'll start in on the sacraments.